Good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing well. It's Tuesday, March 9th. It is 10.30 a.m., and that means it is time for Bible study. I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it today. I got uh, my first vaccine, my first shot this morning. Uh, I had an appointment at 8.30 out at Texas Motor Speedway and uh, got in and out pretty quickly, so able to do the Bible study today. So uh, glad you're able to join me and hope you're doing well as we study Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 8 is just awesome. There is so much good stuff in Romans chapter 8. So we're going to study it together, and uh, we're going to learn from one another, and uh, uh, glad you're here. So, all right, start with verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life and Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For the law of the spirit of life. The spirit of life. I love love that phrase, spirit of life. Paul uses the word spirit a lot in this chapter. A lot. And when he does uh, in Hebrew, uh, the word that he's using is ruach. Uh, ruach. Um, R-U-A-C-H-E. And uh, in the uh, Greek, it would be panuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. You could think of it like a pneumatic uh, tool that you might have that uses air compressor. But it's this powerful wind, this powerful and mighty wind uh, is the basic, the the truest translation of what it is. Uh, It's something that is not of human power. You know, we human beings cannot control the wind, right? It's just this, uh, it's this divine power. And we see the power of the wind. The wind, I think, is a really great example of of a way to understand the the Holy Spirit because we can't see the wind. You cannot see wind. You can only see wind because of what it's doing, right? Uh, the effect that it's having on the things around you. You can only see wind when you look at a tree branch in the wind, right? Or a flag in the wind or, you know, and you see, well, wow, wind, wind is powerful to move that. We can't see it. I can feel it and I can see what it does. And if you ever go to a sand dunes, you know, you see the wind pushing the sand and making mountains, right? The, the wind has the power to make mountains, yet we can't see it. You cannot see wind. You can only see what it does. And the Spirit of God is very similar in that, you know, you can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. You can see what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world, but you can't see the Spirit. And I think that's that's a, a really powerful image for what the what the Holy Spirit does, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus does. And and one of the things it does, Paul says, sets you free from the law of sin and of death. You it, it it comforts you with knowing that you are forgiven. It assures you of that. Now, I want to take a side uh, side little tangent here and, and a side teaching. And, and this is the same word uh, used in Genesis when God breathed into Adam. Right, so so it's the ruach of God that was breathed into Adam. The spirit of life was breathed into Adam. God breathed it into Adam. Uh, it's so you can you can say that uh, God's own breath or God's own spirit was breathed into Adam at the creation of humanity. Uh, and so that's the, the same word. Uh, and so a, a powerful imagery helping us understand the work and. Uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the power of having the Holy Spirit with us, the spirit of life. I love that. The spirit 
of life. You have the spirit of life in you. Uh, How awesome is that? Okay, we continue with verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, so Paul draws a line between two different kinds of life, basically. Life in the flesh and life in the spirit. Life which is dominated by the flesh, by sinful, selfish desires. It's a life that is controlled by lust, by pride, by greed, by selfishness, versus life controlled by the spirit, which is obedient to God and motivated by love. What we do was motivated by love, motivated by grace. I want to share grace. I want to share love. I am dominated by the spirit. My life is dominated by the work of the spirit in me. Versus I want as much money as I can get. I want all this stuff. I want all the, you know, it's all about me, right? I am the center of everything. Uh, you know, and so you have lust and pride and, you know, uh, now I don't, I want to say this. I don't think all pride and ambition is bad, right? We can be proud of our achievements. We can say, you know, I'm I'm really, I'm really proud of myself for having finished this degree or for lost, lost this weight or whatever it may be, right? That's okay. That's okay. But life can't always be about me. It can't always be about the things I accomplished, the things I've done, right? It can't always be about and focused on me, right? That's what God is talking about, or that's what the scripture is talking about here. And so, you know, Paul says there's a line, right? You cannot live a life of the flesh and a life of the spirit. Luther said we're saints and sinners, meaning we live both of these lives, right? We live a life that is of the spirit and a life that is of the flesh that, you know, they're both in us. They're both in us. And so, um, you know, I don't, maybe you can sense that, uh, sense both in your life. Maybe you can sense that you've, you're motivated now, uh, more by the spirit than you were in the past. But, um, you know, it's, I think it's something to think about this idea that are we, is our life, uh, are we living of the spirit or of the flesh? And, you know, when we're looking for all the ways in which we can, uh, you know, take care of ourselves, make ourselves more comfortable, have more stuff, all that stuff, you know, that is life motivated by the flesh. But when we start to think about how, how can I proclaim God's love? How can I be somebody who encourages and supports others? Life motivated by the spirit. So, okay, we continue. Verses 15 through 17. I I just love this chapter. This chapter is so good. There's so many great things. I mean, you could preach a, I could preach two months on this chapter. Okay. Verses 17 through 15 through 17. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So this understanding is that you have been adopted by God. God has adopted you. You are one of God's children. Now, uh, a quick little lesson on Roman adoption of that time. So Roman children were considered possessions of their father. And um, 
sons never really came of age. They belonged to their father as long as their father was still alive. And so adoption meant basically passing ownership of one uh, ownership of a child from one father to the other. And the child really had to be had to be purchased, had to be purchased. And so once it was purchased, then the father would go to a Roman official and present a legal case with a bill of sale, transfer of ownership. And then once that person was officially adopted into the new family, they lost all rights in the old family, but became an heir in the new family. And, and once they had their new family, it was like they had a new life. Their old life, their old debts wiped clean. So they had a new life. So when you are adopted into God's family, you, are ha- you have a new life, right? New life in Christ through the spirit which you have been adopted. You have been adopted to be one of God's children. So the old life with the old debts through your, uh, the old debts that were caused by your sins have been wiped away and you are now heirs, joint heirs with Christ. And I love this understanding of, of salvation is... We, we, we get it because we are an heir. We inherit it. It is something that we get because we belong to, the, to a family. It's not something we earn. It's not a reward for good behavior. It is something that we get as an inheritance because our, someone before us did the work, right? That's what inheritance is. Someone before us did the work. And, and earned this money or bought this stuff or whatever. And when they died, it came to us free of charge. Not because we've done anything, not because we've earned it, not a reward, but an inheritance. That is uh, Paul's understanding of salvation in Romans chapter 8. Beautiful. I absolutely love it. Next verse, verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation waits in eager expectation. Creation is waiting for the children of God to be revealed. The people, the creation itself, all those who we come in contact with are waiting for the children of God to be revealed and to do something, right? What is it that creation is waiting for you to do? What is it that creation is waiting for us to do? Well, to proclaim the kingdom of God is near, right? And so to, to live lives motivated by the Spirit, to proclaim love and grace and the truth of God, uh, creation eager expect, eagerly waiting for us. I love that. I just love it. Okay. Now, maybe the most comforting verse in all of Scripture. You ready for this? I absolutely love this. Maybe the most comforting verse in all of Scripture. To me, it is. To me, it is, and I'll explain why afterwards. Okay, verses twenty-six. Verse twenty-six is it, and then, but I'll read verses twenty-six and twenty-seven. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how we pray. Um, I'm sorry, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words, and God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I have been so angry, 
so hurt, so confused that I had no idea what to say to God. I wanted to pray, but I couldn't come up with the words. I couldn't come up with what I should say. I was, you know, I was angry and I wanted to just shout out. I wanted to scream. I wanted to yell. I wanted to cry. I wanted to punch something, whatever. I just didn't know what to say. And in those moments, this verse brought unexplainable comfort, knowing that God uh, knew what was in my heart, because it says that God searches the heart, searches the heart, and in my sighs that were too deep for words, the Spirit turned those sighs into the correct words for a prayer. The Spirit knew what I needed to pray for when I didn't. And the Spirit took my size and turned it into the prayer that I needed. I, I mean, that's so comforting to me. That's so, com- I mean, because life is real, right? Life is, crap happens. We have to deal with stuff that we're not, you know, we don't know how to deal with. And, and, and the only way, you know, in these moments, the only thing we can do is sigh, we sigh because we don't know what to say. And we cry because that's part of life, part of the human experience, the human existence. And in those moments, God is with us. God does not abandon us. God does not wait for us to say the right thing. God says, I know what's in your heart, and I'm going to put the words together for you. As, you, as we put our lives back together, I am going to put together, I'm going to organize your thoughts. I'm going to organize your feelings in such a way that I'm going to help you say a prayer. To me, that's incredibly powerful and comforting. And I just absolutely love it. Okay. Next verse. A lot of people, this is one of their favorite verses as well. Verse 28, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard for me to believe this verse to be true. It's hard for me to believe because we see bad things happening to people who we know love God. And we say, how can this verse be true? We know that all things good uh, work together for good for those who love God. We say, well, how can that be true? Because bad things happen to people who love God. What do we say? What do we say in those moments? I think, I think the right thing, the right, the correct theological thing is to say, we translate good in our terms instead of God's. What is a good thing for, according to God? You know, good means, good, good doesn't always mean that, you know, you're going to have a job, right? Sometimes we lose our job and it's not necessarily God doing it to us or against us, right? It's not God punishing us. Someone gets sick, it's not God punishing us. Uh, I, I think when we think about God's understanding of good, we are talking about salvation. We are talking about victory over Satan. We are talking about um, forgiveness and salvation. And, and you know, setting aside the things of the world for the things of the kingdom and being assured of our place uh, in God's kingdom. Uh, I think that's, that's really the only way that I've ever been able to wrap my mind around around this text, right? All things work for good. And so, and then the end of the chapter is verses 31 through 38, and uh, a great piece of scripture, uh, almost poetic, one that once, I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, it's just, it's just so great. And once I start reading it, you'll, you'll, 
you'll remember it. You'll go, oh, yeah, I know that verse. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised up, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know why reading that got me emotional. But it's, as I said, it's poetic, it's comforting, it's powerful. When, when we ask the question... In verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And we say, well, that doesn't make sense because we know bad things happen to those who love God. We, under, we remember that Paul was writing this at a time when Christianity and Christians were persecuted and put to death. And life was really difficult, much more difficult, much more difficult than we have it today according to, you know, with our faith, living out our faith. And so they must have heard that and said, well, that doesn't make sense. All things work for good. Life is, life is full of hardship. And he says, yeah, I know, but none of those hardships can separate us from the love of God. So the main purpose of this, uh, of this text is to convince readers that they should not live in fear, that they do not need to be afraid. God is for us. And no one can stand in opposition to God. The victory has been won. It has been won through the death of Christ. It has been won on our behalf, and no one can take it from us. God is with us. The Spirit is with us. And no one can stand in opposition to God. Sometimes uh, in the afternoons, uh, late afternoon, early evening, we'll go for a walk, the three of us, my wife, my daughter, and I. We'll take our dog. And uh, we don't have sidewalks in our neighborhood, so we walk in the street, but we don't have a lot of traffic on our streets. But my daughter will walk, and she'll walk the dog, and she's five, and she'll walk, and I will walk directly behind her. Because if I'm behind her, if something's coming from behind, it's going to get me first, and if something's coming from ahead, I can see it. And so I'll walk a step behind her. And, you know, she, this little girl who's just shy of four feet tall, and her dad, who's six foot four, and, uh, you know, a big dude walking right behind her. If anyone sees her coming, they're going to see me right behind her. And they're going to know, don't mess with that little girl because I'm going to be messing with that really big guy right behind her. And as I'm, as I'm walking behind her, I often think of that image for God, that we walk through life as human beings, right? As limited human beings, but what we don't see is this giant God walking behind us, this giant God with us. And no one can stand in opposition to God because if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. 
No one is more powerful than God. It says that you know, God has forgiven our sins. We cannot be condemned. There is no other judge to be concerned about. There is no other judge to be concerned about when we talk about sin. We don't need to worry about what other people think. We don't need to worry about what any other celestial being thinks. We only have to worry about what God thinks. And we know what God thinks. Uh, And there is nothing, there is no person, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So God is with you. God has forgiven you. God's going to give you salvation as an heir. And guess what? There's no one who can take it away. No one has the power to take it away. These promises cannot be taken away from us by anyone or anything, angels, rulers, things present, things to come. I love things. To, who knows what's going to come? It can't take away the promise of God. Powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. That, nothing. There is nothing that can take it away. And there's nothing that will take it away. There's nothing to come that will take it away. So, if all these things are true, why should we fear anything? That's what Paul's saying. Uh, Romans 8, an a incredible, incredible piece of scripture. I know Luther, I know Luther loved um, Romans 5. To me, though, I like Romans 8. Romans 5 is great theologically. Uh, Romans 8, to me, is about as, as comforting as it gets. I mean, it is just so beautiful and uh, so powerful. And uh, thanks for joining me on this journey through Romans 8. So we will stop there with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for all that you have done for us, for giving us the spirit of life, for being with us through the difficult moments of life, for interceding on our behalf when all we can do is sigh. Uh, We thank you for the promises that you have given us, for being with us, uh, for being for us, for forgiving us, and for having love for us that cannot ever be taken away. We pray that you would help us uh, to live a life in the Spirit, help us to uh, meet the expectations of the world uh, so that they may know your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, have a wonderful Tuesday, and we will see you again on Thursday. Take care of yourselves.